Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast. I'm so excited to have coming up in this podcast a really fun conversation with somebody whose list of accomplishments so far in his life is really super impressive. And the person is James B. Now, you may ask yourself, who is this James B? And if you live in the Toronto area and don't know who he is, then you've probably been in hiding somewhere, never go out, listen to the radio, or frankly, don't do much, as he's everywhere. He's a singer, a band leader, raconteur, producer, concert promoter, mentor, MC, an author of two books, and also the ultra-likable face of Jazz FM 91. On the station, he is the morning show co-host, fundraiser supremo, he's the creator of curated tours from Iceland to Cuba, hosts of the James B. Salons, he's a guest speaker at music industry-related events, he's also a PR consultant, does A&R for a record label and a music publishing company, and he's a scriptwriter, art gallery curator, and widely known as a champion of local talent. Oh, and I forgot to mention he's now making films too, and really good ones. I could go on and on, but I have him coming right up to talk about his career in detail. And so after the brief music interlude, get ready for a really interesting, fun chat. Hi, James, and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast. And thanks so much for doing this. As you know, you're the busiest person I know, period. You're like a whirling dervish out there, just, you know, uh, doing all sorts of crazy things. So um, thanks, Tom. I got to tell you, though, after that intro, I got to have a nap. I didn't realize I was that busy. When you do stuff you love, you don't quite notice it. When I look at a daytimer, I get really tired, going overwhelmed, going, oh, look at how many things I have to do this week. But when I do it, day by day when i wake up in the morning i'm always excited because i've always i always know what i what i have to do sure well after mentioning in my opening dialogue all the different creative hats you've worn uh major props for you know leading such a really interesting life so far and also for being one of the most popular people in toronto as you really are the man about town. And you know what? You're also one of our most colorful characters out there. <laughs> well, you know what? Gino Empri passed away, and I'm trying to think of the eccentrics. Mendelssohn Joe passed away. A lot of the eccentric, wild people of Toronto aren't with us, so we got to keep it going. I, I hope I find some more, some more young people who you know, dare to dress a little different and make a little bit of a noise. Um, but in my case, it comes natural. I dressed funny ever since I was a little kid. And uh, when I moved to Toronto, I, I just am grateful. So I think one of the things about, about being recognized in Toronto, like if I go into a restaurant, people will say hi to me. Wherever I go, I, I meet people. And I just always feel like I'm some guy from, some kid from North Bay who got lucky and came down here and, you know, just never wanted to sit around and do nothing. Well, you've come a long way because, uh, I mean, I was just going to mention, you could actually probably run for mayor. You're that well known out there. <laughs> oh, yeah, but then I'd have to have lunch with politicians instead of going sailing and writing movies and making music. <laughs> so I'm not in. I'm not in. You probably would get a decent amount of votes. So <laughs> I actually had someone from Rock the Vote uh, approach me the year that... Uh, 
well, the, the dark times when there was really nobody running. And they said they were going to endorse me. And I'm like, yeah, Rock the Vote doesn't endorse. They just tell people to vote. Right. And they said, in this case, we'll make an exception. But I, I said, no, I can't. I can't do politics. I have too many skeletons in the closet. And they're not even in the closet. They're dancing. My skeletons are dancing in my living room. And you know what? You're having too much fun doing the other stuff. But being a politician is not really fun. <laughs> no, but but being involved in the arts and promoting them in every way possible. Yes. I I sit on some juries. Uh, I, I help give away money when I can. I work for charities. So I'm always grateful to do what I can as long as it's not technically politics where I have to uh, deal with the media. Got it. So James, before we go deep on your career arc so far, how about we start with uh, promoting your immediate event coming up shortly as I heard you're turning 40, which, which you know, Wow, that's the congratulations. <laughs> I look pretty bad for 40. <laughs> I look really good for 60, but I don't look very good for 40. When I was a kid, I thought that, you know, people were old, like, you know, somebody who's 50 was old. And as you start to age a little bit, you look around, you realize, nope, that ain't old. Oh, maybe, maybe 70. Nope. Eight, 80? No, not really. Maybe <laughs> 90 is old. I So, you know, 60 is the new 45, though, James. You know that, right? So you got this. I wouldn't be too, too worried. <laughs> Don Franks told me you have to own your age because you got to set an example and inspire people. So I want people to go, whoa, how could you be 60? I'm like, great. Exactly. And do what I'm doing. Yeah. I'd rather do that. And I also see people I work with in their 70s and 80s that are not slowing down. John Finley's a better singer than ever. I see people out cracking jokes and having fun in life. So uh, I'm just not going to be, yeah, I'm just going to own my age and admit it and move on. You look amazing though, still, by the way. So uh, there you go. There's there's my my compliment there for you. <laughs> I'll take it. You know, this is a, a verbal <laughs> podcast, so I'll just, people can use their imagination just how hot I might be. So I want to get, <laughs> I want to get detail about this big, humongous bash coming up. Please go, go there and, and, and talk about what, you know, it's coming up like next week, literally. Yeah. April the 12th is the date. I turn uh, 60 at midnight, but on April the 12th, what I've done is I've taken over the entire Old Mill Toronto building. Mm -hmm. If you haven't been there, folks, it looks more like a castle than a mill. Um, there are ballrooms and all different size rooms from 50 people to 200 people in each different room. And so what we've done is uh, hired a whole bunch of musicians. Over 100 musicians are playing 24 bands in 12 different rooms. That's amazing. Each room has two bands and they and they stagger an hour on, an hour off. It's a four hour party. So that way you can sit down and see four shows in one night, right? Four different bands, an hour each, or you can have a cocktail walk through the hallways and see two songs from each different band and take out 24 bands in one evening. Well, I will be doing that myself for sure. Yeah, that's guaranteed you'll see me there. Uh, so it's for the Unison Fund, right? Can you explain what that is? Exactly. The Unison Fund has done so much for people in the music industry. And in my position, when I look at the musicians they've helped, just people that I play on the radio on Jazz FM, mm -hmm. I was absolutely amazed how many people they helped during COVID. And now it's our turn to help them. It's, it's our turn to give back. What I've done is got some sponsors so the musicians get paid an honorarium. No one's been asked to play for free. but Every cent from the door, every cent from the ticket sales goes directly to Unison Fund. Amazing. So uh, they're already, uh, uh, you know, they're already happy with how tickets are selling, but 
this is a big place. We can fill this room. So it's a $40 ticket to see 24 bands. Well, that's a hell of a deal. And it's going to a great cause as well. Right. And then you can also, if you want, it, for the high rollers, $250, you can come to the gala dinner. Sure. And then the whole show. So the gala dinner's at six and the show's at eight and it goes till midnight. We'll do another plug for it at the end, but that's uh, a must go. Yeah. Unisonfund.ca slash events. That's where you can get all your information. Terrific. Okay, before we do a deep dive on your career trajectory so far, why don't we get into uh, what you're up to currently, as I I know you've got some exciting projects on the go. So uh, take it away. Why don't you just go current, and then we'll go we'll dig into your into your uh, illustrious background. Okay, the the two. The two biggest thrills in my life these days. Now, I have been at Jazz FM for 21 years, and I did produce the morning show. Now I'm doing freelance for them. I'm doing radio shows for them, but I can record anywhere, anytime. I, I need to be free to move because I've got so many things happening. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing a little bit of touring with the Beeline Adventure Tours. I take people to different uh, cities based on music. Not always jazz, but um, uh, we've just I did two tours of Cuba. Uh, I'm taking people on trips around the world. Um, I am producing films. I'm writing and directing movies. And I got lucky here because I found an executive producer, Michelle Silvanetto. She mm -hmm. wanted to be involved in the film business and said, let's start with a short film, see how that goes. And it was so much fun. This first movie, Wild Music, was so much fun. We went right in and did a second movie. I'm just finishing it now, editing. Uh, and then the third movie we're shooting in July. So three short films, which equals a feature, basically. I can take this around and show it to people. So what, explain what a short film is. How long is it? In this case, between 20 and 30 minutes. Um, it feels like a, when I do them, um, some people do a short film where it's like a snippet of someone's life or it's a little tiny moment. In my case, I want to make an actual story. Okay. So it is a movie. It really is a movie, it's a short but it's a movie. short movie. Right. Sure. And you can see one movie without seeing the others and it has a beginning, middle and end and it finishes and you go, okay, that was fun. But if you watch my three movies in a row, they are in some ways a trilogy. There are some recurring characters and there are some little Easter eggs in there that people would really enjoy, but you can see one movie and not see the other. So you can see any movie you want, but if you do see them in a row, uh, it'll make sense. And the wild music has already been out there and winning awards. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, because I think I read somewhere that's got 22 awards so far, unless I read that incorrectly. <laughs> it's bizarre. It's bizarre. So according to Film Freeway, uh, Wild Music has picked up 14 awards, but it's that that's not correct because it's 14 uh, festivals that won awards, but at many festivals it won two or three awards at one festival. So wow. we are we are up to 22 awards. I and I am counting a few people. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, my 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 sound editor John O'Grant. He had a trophy sent to him from Italy. Uh, so did my producer. Uh, my editor just won uh, in uh, Sacramento Film Festival and Transylvania, the Romanian Film Festival. So <laughs> my editor said, you know. I, he's a very professional editor. His name is Rick Bartram. And he said, I, you know, I've done a ton of films. He says, but you never get tired of getting an accolade from someone because you don't know who loves it 
until you hear back from people. So, and that's your first, that's your first step too. Like, cause I think you, you did these other two or, or after this first one. So you, you're on a roll here. Well, two things happened here. I got really lucky. Um, Aaron Alter is my DOP. He wanted film in the camera. He wanted actual film, not video. Mm -hmm. okay. So we spent some decent bucks on this one, but what was cool was I got to hire all of my friends because it's a non-union. There's no actra in this. All right. So yeah. I got to hire all of my musicians uh, that are actual actors that can act, but they're not professional. And at some point uh, during the Toronto um, Indie Film Festival, there was a plot in the middle of the film after after Robert Priest and Julie Michael sang a song, there was a bunch of applause. And I'm like, these aren't my friends. I don't know the people in this room. They don't know I'm in the room. I'm in the back of the room hiding in the, in the dark. You, you hit a nerve there with them, uh, obviously, that uh, people are really digging it. Good for you. It was a beautiful song, and they're so good and believable together. Yeah. So I found out one thing, Tom. I found out that I, I've been spending my whole life on stage going yada, 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 and I get just as much excitement and love from the back of a dark theater where people are laughing and clapping and they don't know I'm in the theater in a way I kind of prefer it. Yep. Uh, I'm probably because it's new to me. Sure. Right. I, I prefer being in the dark and hearing applause than being on stage and hearing applause. Weird. Is this going to possibly lead to you going to Hollywood? <laughs> uh, yes. And going, going that route? Absolutely. Absolutely. Will, but I, I'm not moving there full time, no, but absolutely, course. I'm going to have to go down more often. You've got too much great stuff happening up here. Also, Canada is my home. Yeah. Yeah. And and honestly, I love it here. I'm not moving to the U.S. No. But I have to go down there for business. And I do love visiting. I love going down to L.A. The last time I was there, uh, Jeff Goldblum got me on stage with him to sing some songs. Wow. And he is He's like my little brother, except he's taller and older. He looks like really a sincere guy, like really a fun guy. He loves jazz, too, from what I gather. I think he's actually released jazz albums, I think. He loves jazz. The only thing with Jeff, I'd say, is I wouldn't trust his driving because his <laughs> okay. eyes dart around all the time. <laughs> right. But he's charming and a great piano player. We had a good time together. So I want to go to L.A. more and more and hang out with people and just have fun. Of course. Well, maybe we'll come back to that a little bit later. So let's go to your beginnings, James. Um, I, I have read a little bit about your bio, of course, and you were born in North Bay. So... What was your childhood like start, growing up in a small town like that? And when did you actually feel like, hey, I'm, I'm, I, it looks like I'm a pretty extroverted kid and that music and being creative was going to be a major part of your life. Was that something you felt early as a kid? Yeah, I think I was five or six. But but here's the thing. I always loved finger painting, really, putting on costumes and pretending you're someone else. I mean, Mr. Dress Up had a great influence on me as a child. But when I, it's when I found out, and I, I don't really remember the age, but I think it was about six years old. Uh -huh. My dad used to always point at actors and see if I could remember who they were. And I always recognized, you know, Peter Fonda, or Henry Fonda, uh, sure. you know, certain people, right? I could always, uh, Clark Gable, I could recognize. And so I kept asking my dad, that guy's rich, right? That guy's rich, right? And he'd always <laughs> say, yeah. Well, I thought you had to pay to be an actor. And uh, when he said okay. they're rich because they act, they get paid to be in this movie. You get paid to pretend you're someone you're not. That's a good job. And then I asked him, what about music? 
do you get paid to make music? Yeah, Re- that's a job. I thought jobs were just like teachers and garbage men and police. I didn't know. Got it. So as soon as if six years old, I find out, oh, I can get paid. I just went, I'm going to be an artist. I didn't know if I'd be a writer. So you were artistic already uh, really early on, like six, seven, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I just knew I'd be an artist. I didn't know. I didn't know wh- where I'd make my money. Okay. So as you're growing up and you're getting older, are you, you know, really getting into music, uh, you know, like eight, nine, 10, getting into that? Or is that creeping or that come a little bit later on? No, I, music, music was third. The very first thing I did was I was a writer and I always wrote short stories and poems and songs. I just was writing all the time. Then I got into making home movies with an eight millimeter Bolex camera and I would get all the kids in the neighborhood and dress up like vampires and stuff. So that was like, I'm 10 years old making movies ah. um, with a Bolex camera. So every movie's four minutes long. Well, that was foreshadowing then right there. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and then I got into music. Now I always loved listening to music. Uh-huh. Um, the first album I ever bought with my own money was Deodato um brazilian jazz oh, and it I was his, that. That was a good his version of 2001 a space odyssey right uh it's the first album i ever bought and but i i wasn't good at music so i could play piano uh i tried to play guitar not very good i tried to play drums not very good i played trumpet in high school but i really didn't feel like i was a musician i felt like i was a singer songwriter so you knew you were creative but you didn't necessarily know that music was going to be your your sort of main forte later on in life you were but you had that gene of being creative okay right it's when i got to toronto and I got to tell you why, because I saw some famous actors I knew from TV commercials and on TV and stuff, and they weren't working. Right. And they explained to me, you have to audition a lot and you don't always get the part. And I said, you know what? I, I know all these musicians. I'm just going to go be creative and not audition. Were your parents supportive of, of you when you were growing up? Was it like basically, hey, James, do whatever you like, you know, go for it? Yeah, ridiculously supportive. I th- They saw it made me happy and they saw that I had some talent. I don't know if I had a lot or not. That's, I mean, it, they didn't, they didn't think you, you, you had the talent to be an engineer, for instance, like go that direction, <laughs> or, or, <laughs> right? you know, like a lot of parents do. I actually called my mom, mommy dearest, and I pretended that she forced me into it, but it's not true at all. <laughs> okay. My whole family has a dark sense of humor and it is, it is probably the biggest blessing in my life is uh, the sense of humor that I inherited. Yeah, we could we could all use some more humor in our life. I'll say that for sure. So I'm glad I'm glad you've been humorous through your whole life. And every time I'm with you, I, I laugh my head off. So I, I love that about you. So let's um, let's segue a little bit from okay. So you're growing up in North Bay, and then you somehow uh, you get older, and um, I think you hit Switzerland first. And can I hear that? Because I don't even know why you ended up there and how. And so give us the story on that. I was supposed to be there twice. Uh, I was supposed to be there in uh, 1983. I was supposed to be there to work in a ski chalet. And I met a girl and she told me that David Bowie tickets went on sale. So instead of going to Switzerland, I got David Bowie tickets for me and this girl and I went to see him in concert. Uh, A year later, I joined a band and some of them are are from Switzerland. As, as, As what? As the front man? As the front man. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this band from Switzerland comes to Canada. They decide they need a new front man. Their their front man sang with an accent, spoke with an accent. So he went to playing guitar and they brought in a Canadian singer. Uh, As soon as I joined the band, I convinced them and said, let's go to Switzerland. We've got a set of music 
And if we go to Switzerland, we'll get more famous in Canada because you have to leave Canada. You're not going to get famous staying here. Okay. Uh, you have to go somewhere else, get famous, and then come home. Got it. So that's exactly what we did. Uh, it worked so well. It was so much fun. Uh, and the band changed members a lot in the first five years. Okay. So this wasn't the beginning of Look People. That came a bit later. It was. It was the very beginning of Look People. But Oh, it was the beginning. But, but, okay. but great Bob Scott, my drummer, who I still work with, 35 years later, the great Bob Scott wasn't in the first band. The first band was four Swiss guys and me. Then we brought him in as a percussion player. And within about six months, he became the drummer. And Bob and I were the only ones who were in the band right up until the very end. Otherwise, we had a lot of people come in. And okay. So you go to Switzerland, you're starting, you, you become a front man for the first time, and you're probably going, hey, I'm pretty good at this. Well, the band rehearsed a lot. So the band <laughs> okay. supported me, and I brought in the crazy ideas, the dance steps and the songs and the costumes, but the band were so good. They were even every version of this band, look people, every version of the band rehearsed five times, five days a week. Yeah, but you had something going on visually that was kind of kind of out there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Some moves that I wasn't seeing anywhere else. No, in Europe, they co they compared us to the Tubes and Frank Zappa, more the Tubes for, for live. For sure. And then later in life, we uh, we played with the Chili Peppers and, and people compared us to them. But at the beginning, people thought we were like the band, the Tubes. So that's the, the first uh, beginnings of the Look People. But then you come back to Toronto and correct me if I'm wrong in the timing here. And then you meet Mark Breslin yeah. somehow. Uh, and that was sort of, can we say that was your first break? Uh, because he was a big player. I met I met Mark before that. And it's a, it's a short, funny story. What happened is I had a club called The Beehive. Mm -hmm. This would have been, oh no, this would have been the time. And so Look People came back to Canada in the late 80s. I had, in 1989, I had a club called The Beehive, and the Toronto Star had a big picture with a picture of me that said, I'm the new king of comedy, and then a tiny picture of Mark Breslin sitting on a toilet with a cigarette saying, <laughs> okay. uh, yuck yucks is going to be sorry this new club opened. So I read that, and I'm like, that's not true. I only do comedy one night of the week. I'm not the new comedy guy. And I I, I did comedy at, at, at Yuck Yucks in 1984, and I really respected Mark Breslin. So I called up my publicist, Joanne Smale, and said, listen, I'm upset about what they wrote. Uh, I don't know if I should complain. And she says, don't complain to the star. That's not going to do you any good. It's already printed. But you might want to call Mark Breslin and tell him you don't agree with the star, and you never said a word about Yuck Yucks, right? Well, that was pretty gutsy of you to, to, to then do that. So I called him and Mark said, come over for lunch. We had lunch and he offered me a job on the spot uh, to work with him at a comedy festival as a creative consultant, uh, producer and uh, musical director of some comedy shows. And ever since that, since that first meeting, that's it. We uh, He's one of my favorite people in Canada. Yeah, he, unbelievable what he's done for comedy all around the world. For and sure. he, he doesn't always get the credit for it. No, no, that's true. That's a really cool story of being in the right place at the right time. Howie Mandel, Harland Williams. I mean, I could go on and on. So many people started at Yuck Yucks. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, so then you did some time with Mark and you got you got into that world of comedy. And of course, you were perfect for it. So you were still in the band, Look People. And is that when Kevin joined and you started getting more serious about... Um, you know, looking for a record deal and stuff. Is that kind of how it played out? Yeah, I think I think that, I mean, we always thought we were going to get a record deal, but we got little tiny deals, but... Well, I eventually showed up, although I wasn't Warner. 
<laughs> no, 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 no. I met you in South of France, right? That's right. I met yeah. you at the Medium Convention in Cannes. Correct. I played you some music. You loved it. And I'm like, this is so weird. We're going to make a record <laughs> with Tom Tremuth in Canada, even though we're based in Switzerland, but we're Canadian. I know. It was like our first deal with Kensington Sound. Same thing. I met Mike Elianak and I'm like, this is so weird. I can't believe I keep meeting people in Europe who sign us to a Toronto-based label. But the main thing with Kevin, when he joined, I think musically, uh, we got maybe the, the the best point of our career was around 1992 because that Boogasm album, mm -hmm. we had probably six albums worth of material, right? And we made one record, but it, we had so much material and our tours were ridiculous. So that was, for me, my probably my favorite memory of the band was during that uh, Boogasm phase, that one album. Well, you know, um, I kind of chuckled now just thinking what people must have thought of us like me for signing you guys and then you know our peers wondering if we were if we were all regularly doing acid or something because <laughs> i mean we were we really stuck out like a sore thumb out there like that's for sure like the dress that you guys wore on stage and you know all the wacky stuff that uh you know you guys were doing um well I, you, you know, know the mark breslin thing turned into something big before me because first of all when we first met i was doing productions for weird al yankovic and jim carrey and stuff and then as our friendship kept going and we kept working together, when Mark became the executive producer of Friday Night with Ralph Ben Murgy on CBC, yes. he asked me if I'd be the musical director. Right. And I said, can I have look people as my band? And he said, you can have whatever band you want. CBC has a budget. You tell me what you want. I said, I want I want look people. I, I want to work with my buddies. And you know what? When I saw that happen, I thought that's a miracle happening there. Like that, uh, It was you know. such a miracle. It was the craziest <laughs> thing. It was like, also one of my life lessons. Um, we made one fatal error in the fourth episode of this TV show. Uh -huh. Our band voted on things, right? And... I wanted to do a song called Sneaky Pucker and have Holly Cole sing backup vocals. And it was like the one song where it was kind of melodic and most of our stuff was not at all. It was crazy. No, Melody wasn't high on the list. <laughs> yeah, we ended up doing a song that was original, but it kind of sounded like No Means No. Uh, it was very aggressive. Yeah. And we never got asked to do another solo show on that we in our contract we were going to do every fourth fourth show we got to do a full song yeah which paul schaefer never got to do right no no it's true so it was like wow that's really good that they're letting us do that but the first time we did a song we picked the most rocking crazy song and we never got a solo tune again <laughs> but i i totally can't disagree with cbc going guys like this is way too Toronto for all of Canada. Well, let's let's think about this. Right, that was a CBC who put you guys on. We're not exactly known as cutting edge, you know. So no, I think and that was and actually, the the we had a, a shelf show. They 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 record a show for emergencies in case something happens, right? So the very first shelf show, Great Pop Scott came out in adult diapers and pretended to have sex with an inflatable sheep. And one of the heads of CBC turned to Breslin and said, that does it. These guys are fired. These guys can't do it. And he goes, oh, no, no. They know that this show isn't going to air. They will never do this. They're professional. <laughs> and he stood up for us. <laughs> one of my favorite times is when you did the lowrider video and you guys showed up and you all looked like you were kids from like, you know, grade school, like in grade five. Yeah. With tiny little tricycles and then you had go-karts, of course. I mean, that that still, uh, for me, is one of the f funniest times I've ever had. But you know why I made that video? 
I was doing storyboards for the band and we had just finished a video that we shot at the Bovine Sex Club uh-huh. and it was about the environment and we were covered in black oil at the end. I remember that. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So Joel Goldberg was the director of that and he was cracking up laughing and I said, what's so funny? He goes, oh, it's just that, you know, most people they're at the beach with some girls or, you know, they don't usually cover themselves in paint. I'm just laughing. Like who does your storyboards (laughs) and all the band are covered in black paint. And they look at me like you idiot. Why are we doing this? (laughs) So I said, I promise the next video is going to be fun. So I booked a go-kart track out by the airport Yes, and we had bust out people and we had the most fun day making a video ever. And this time, the band were 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 happy because we weren't covered in paint. And it was another Joel Goldberg video. He made a lot of videos for Look People. Yeah. So that was one of my favorite times there that that day. I still remember I can still still see you guys in the go-karts. <laughs> um so so here's another one. I I I can't remember if I actually saw this or not, but this is gonna be, you know, maybe I gotta ask Great Bob Scott. I could swear. Yeah. We did a showcase for a major label and I think he he pulled his pants down like somewhere in the set. Yeah. And again, I don't know if I should mention this on the air, but I think he actually put a drumstick in it. Well, he inserted a drumstick and he and he played the hi-hat with his ass. Yeah, I think he tried to do a drum solo with the drumstick in his bum. He did. So it did happen. <laughs> it really happened. Okay. One time he came out completely naked, stood on his head on the drum stool, and did a drum solo upside down. Okay. And he was actually a good one. drum solo. And after that, I said... Why haven't you been doing that all the time? We, we could be famous already. Why did you wait like eight years to do that? He goes, I never thought of it before. Oh, my God. I don't know if I saw that anyway, one or not. But... We got in trouble. Uh, the only time we ever got in trouble, we we did the Lollapalooza yep. uh, down in San Francisco. They loved us. We, we, uh, we uh, Rage Against the Machine played just before us. That was crazy. And they were brand new. Um, brand new band. Yep. But when we played at Lollapalooza in Barrie, Ontario, in Canada, it's the only place where the police came and said, we're going to put your drummer in jail if he doesn't put his pants back on. <laughs> oh, figures in Canada, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. What memories that that is with uh, with Great Bob. I got to have him on here at some point. Um, okay, so that, that was just so fun. And you know what? Uh, before we leave that, I'm just going to say I, I'm really proud of that time. I, I actually did two albums with you guys. And you know, you guys were ahead of your time. I mean, it's just, I honestly think a little bit later on, you know, when the great, uh, the Chili Peppers came out and some others or became more popular, I think you guys just were a bit too I agree. early. If, you if know. the band were around right now, um, they would have a whole bunch of young Absolutely. fans. If they, yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. So let's let's move on. Let's go to, so, okay, so you did the show uh, on Ben Berge, and then where did you head after that? You finished with the Look People, and you went into... Um, Oh, yeah. So we had the, well, Crazy Eggs is the last record we made with you. That's right. And we toured and we had this tour called the Laying of the Egg Tour. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't know how accurate Hmm. that was going to be. Right. But we basically decided, you know, Bob, uh, Bob's wife had a baby in the oven. Everybody was ready. Look, look, if we can't get a record deal, we've been around nine years. We're going to have to do something else. So I immediately... I mean, I, I I flubbed around for about six months trying every kind of music, trying to find my muse, and I knew what it was, but I didn't think I could afford it. I got a Factor grant to do a big band record. And when I decided, oh, I'm going to do 
like lounge music. So, but it's it's almost Spike Jones. It's not so much Harry Connick, but it's like it's real music. Yeah. But it's a little bit out there, and I actually got the money to do it. And thanks to Molly Johnson. Yes. She heard one of my demos at a restaurant. And called me and said, uh, I want you to play my Kumbaya Festival at Ontario Place Forum. So uh -huh. suddenly, oh, I'm nice. playing between uh, uh, Andy Kim and Bare Naked Ladies, and my band is playing. And I'm like, whoa, I just started this band a couple months ago. Is this the Royal Jelly Orchestra band, James? Yeah. So the Royal Jelly Orchestra started with an independent record. Uh -huh. And then I got the deal with BMG, and then the real money started to come in. So I would say uh, late 90s, 97 okay. is like when I made real money and started to go, oh, look, I have a job. And you and you were part of, you started a label too called Leisure Labs from what I remember. That's and right. Was, that's, and you did quite a bit of this kind of stuff, yeah. Had a real budget too. BMG were really good to me. And it was also, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm super grateful because when Look People toured, we had the short bus. And I mean, literally, we, we bought a short school bus and we oh, went around the country. Okay. Um, when I did the RJO, I had a 16-piece band in a giant tour bus with my head painted on the back of it. Oh, I think I remember seeing that. Yeah, it was... The big leagues. So at least I got that just before 1999. Like when, when Napster hit and the entire music industry went kaput, I had done my one big tour because I don't think that'll ever happen again. I think that's done. No. Those days of having a 60-piece band in a tour bus and being able to afford to cross the country and stay in hotels and all that. It was insane. Okay. So um, you did that for a number of years. And then um, I'd love to know how you ended up on radio and CJRT, also, of course, known as Jazz FM now. Before that, were you also doing some underground radio? Uh, I think you did a college thing, and maybe, were you on CFRB? I was. Well, okay, radio is interesting. I started in uh, Switzerland, DRS3, which is the CBC of, of, of Switzerland. And what happened is I was playing, singing a, a New Year's Eve party they were having, uh -huh. um, and they I just really hit it off with the people that ran the station, and they said, you should come on and bring... Canadian music that isn't famous and show us what the scene is like. And I was so excited because I brought a ton of music with me to Europe. So I was playing all these Queen Street West bands. Yeah. Right. Like Groovy Religion, Neon Rome, all these, Tony Blue, all these bands. And I was playing them on Swiss radio. So when I came to Canada, I guess this was now 88, I decided I'm going to do a show at CKLN. Yeah, Ryerson. Yeah. And I played my record collection of horrible uh, singing celebrities. So it could be Meadowlark Lemon. It could be from the Globetrotters. It could be Saturday Night Live. Some of those people, yeah. Garrett Morris, different people put out records back then. Uh, of course, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. Oh, yes. So I played terrible music. And it got syndicated to various radio stations across Canada. <laughs> I love the way you say play terrible music. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's called the Bruised Ego Hour. Well, you certainly had eccentric tastes uh, from everybody else. That's for sure. Right. You always have. And, and then the funniest thing, I can't repeat the story uh, because it's rude and hilarious, but uh, uh -huh. I... I I somehow became friends with Gary Slate in a funny way. Um, we really hit it off the first time that we sat down and he, he said, do you want 
to do, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to do radio. He said, really? I said, well, if you were Moses Neymar, I'd want to do TV. But since you have radio stations, I just want your money. <laughs> at least you're honest. Yeah, no, he thought it was funny because uh, I really didn't think I'd ever get a job at CFRB. Um, but I did. And it was a really fun couple of years. But I, I did... I was a bit too smarmy, like, you know, John Oakley and Jim Richards are, are, are my my heroes of talk radio. Yeah. So I would do something like I'd say, OK, so my show is for people that have an opinion, but don't bother to form one. Oh, interesting. Because <laughs> people would just call me and complain about whatever was on the front page of the Toronto Sun. And I started to have a bit of a disdain for my audience. So so I moved on and then I was producing conspiracy radio. Um, and I didn't even have my name, but everyone could tell it was my voice, right? So uh, I lasted a year there, and I went, nope. I, uh, conspiracy radio <laughs> was fun when it started, and then it got too serious. And I'm like, I don't go for conspiracies. I, I'll keep an open mind and play the what if game, but I don't want my. I don't want to be. You don't want to be known for that, no. And that's Jazz FM. They asked me to produce a show. I could host a one-hour show and I could produce a two-hour show. So, how did you first start, start there? Like, what did you just do? Show up there? Did you get? Did you get invited? No, they called me. They called me. I I listened to that station and I donated, and I didn't have hardly any money. Like, I went from making really good money in '97 to making nothing in '99. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, but I would donate to the station, and I felt like I was kind of part of the station because I gave the money even though I didn't have to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, I got a call from somebody. He was from the, the U.S. and he didn't know much about the Toronto scene, but he knew that I went out a lot and he knew that I had a lot of contacts and he thought I should probably have a show there. So I went and had an interview, got a show, um, and then started working in their promo department. All I knew is that I love jazz. I know most of the musicians that are in Toronto. I'll yes, never know all of them. I wish I did. Um, mm -hmm. But I know so many of them. And I went, I go out all the time anyway. I should be doing this. And now 21 years later, I'm still doing it. Well, let me give you the biggest compliment I can think of in a short form way. Like you've made jazz cool in this town. Like people I know personally have turned on to the station just because of you. Like tons of them, as a matter of fact, most of my friends. And they go, you know, like James is just a character. And when I see him and I, you know, he's funny and he, he's really knowledgeable as well. Like you check all the boxes, you know, for, for doing Thank what you're you doing. So much. And of course, that's why you're there for 21 years and you're now as visible and vital for them as ever. So let's go into the right. uh, segue into the jazz. And how did that come about? Those safaris and all that, because those are look like, uh, I haven't, sorry, I haven't been on one yet, but I have to go on one. Right. Well, well, well. Here's here's how it started. It started in look people in Europe because my drummer, Great Bob Scott, always played Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa, Louis Belson. Not all mm -hmm. of them were drummer led bands, but a lot of them were. But I was getting my my fill of uh, of a weather report and Uzeb. It could be anything, right? But I was really enjoying it. Going, oh, I like this music. So. When I was in Toronto, I also good great friends with the Shuffle Demons for a million years. Mm -hmm. So I knew a bunch of jazz people. When I decided to do my BMG record, I mean, it wasn't really big band music. It was called lounge music, but it was jazz players. Everybody I worked with, from Peter Appleyard, Sarah McElker, and everybody, they were all jazz players. Yeah. So uh, when I went to Jazz FM, it felt natural at first. Um but I also admit I like all kinds of jazz. So you do. when I started, there was this, the jazz police or the jazz jihad or jazz purists, <laughs> the people I didn't get along with. Mm -hmm. Because if somebody tells me the only real jazz 
is traditional jazz, like from New Orleans. I'm like, yes. Do you mean old white guys playing jazz? Because what about Louis Armstrong? Okay, that counts. Good. Okay, so it's not just white guys. Okay, <laughs> what about? And I keep going with them. I go down the road as much as I could to show to find out wh when did it stop for you? Because if somebody tells me bebop is not jazz or bebop killed jazz they're missing the point of what jazz is totally um so now i'm happy to say 21 years later i don't know any of those people the people i know love good music and why i can be so passionate for jazz and why i i, I can stay with it so long is because it's everything it could be dance music that's jazz it could be completely outside crazy absolutely you know Ornette Coleman music. It could be uh, tasteful soundtrack music. So it could be singer-songwriters. So there's so much under that jazz umbrella. Um, and I wanted to take people to a bunch of clubs uh, to see different, different types of jazz and didn't think it was going to be taking off into the point of now thousands and thousands of people I've taken. Um, and then I started asking about taking people to other countries. So, And you started in Havana, right? Or did you, I think? Uh, it started, first one ever was in New York, okay. then New Orleans, and then and then Cuba. Right. And where, where you have, you must have the, the key of the city there by now, or your own apartment. <laughs> you know what? You, you're not far off. I'm going back to Havana in May. They have put my name on the door of the penthouse suite at the Capri Hotel, and You're it says kidding. James P. Suite. Oh, fantastic! So, yeah. uh, but I don't get it for free. I do have to rent it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, again, let, let me compliment you on what you've done. Is you've taken what I call jazz aficionados, but they love jazz, but they also love great food, and they love going to different cultures. So what you've done is combine them. Right. So Italy, for example. Italy, I find this place in a dark little alleyway, mm -hmm. and I admit it's because I had a crush on the bartender. But anyway, I take <laughs> okay. everybody into this little bar, and they had the best meal. And then we go into a concert, and then after the concert, there's like 500 people trying to get backstage to meet Jamie Cullum or Tom Jones or Kurt Elling or Melody Gardot. Sure. But I know them personally, so yeah. I just take all of my people backstage to hang out with the celebrity. So it's really fun. You know, that's so fun. We just mentioned that to go into back alleys because that's what my wife and I do. Whenever we travel, we go to a city and we look for the back alley jazz club. We were just in Copenhagen recently and went to a second floor somewhere and we're blown away at uh, just the talent there. We didn't know who it was, but we sat there and we were kind of like, we felt like locals because most of them were just local jazz yep. fans and it was great food, great atmosphere. And, you know, you really feel like you're part of the city when you do that. Right. Even here in Toronto, I have to tell you, if I'm telling people where to go, people already know the Rex Hotel and the Jazz Bistro. If you send them to some little dive like Grossman's, it's like some little place, yeah. they will often go, whoa, my favorite thing was like the dancing at Dover Courthouse or the student right. band at La Revolution in, in the Junction, a little Mexican restaurant. They like going to a place they would have never found. Exactly. So... I mean, places like the Rex and Jazz Bistro are super important, right? Yeah, these the, these main clubs are super important to the city. Absolutely. Um, somebody should give them some awards. But but the little hole in the walls, Drom Taberna is the new hotspot, right? Taking them to a little place full of people um, is always the most exciting thing. And we're not offering those now at, uh, at Jazz FM, but I have continued 
with my Beeline Adventures. So I still take people on trips. Mm-hmm. Uh, my next one is in uh, June. I'm taking people to uh, Newfoundland, to St. John's, and Heather Bambrook will sing with a big band orchestra. So have you uh, branched out into like places like that where it's not only jazz, it's going to be all kinds of great music? It's all kinds of music. And because, again, jazz fans, the people I know, they're not jazz snobs. They're, they love music. And and also, I mean, a lot of jazz festivals book non-jazz because they, sure do. they, they want to bring in a mixed audience. And if a band, if, if people are going there to see a band that isn't jazz, maybe they're going to see all these bands on side stages and other places and get involved. So I'm not, I understand why they do it, but I also think people that love good music, it's all good. Yeah. Well, what we're talking about, some of the, the Canadian jazz uh, clubs and places, that, like, particularly in Toronto, and I know that the, the country has a few, too, um, across, you know, Vancouver has a really good one, and uh, Montreal, of course, have, have a couple. Yeah. Um, what is your opinion right now of the Canadian jazz scene, since you're sitting on the throne there and you can sort of look down at everything going on? What is it? Is it sort of... Um, is it, um, it's, it's a little stagnant right now, but okay. what is interesting is every time some one place closes, some one place opens, there's always somebody trying to bring music in. Um, but I would like to propose people follow the example of the late great Archie Aline. He, uh, passed away in the seventies, but he was a killer bebop drummer. And what he would do, there's nobody like Archie Aline, but he would walk into a club or a restaurant yep. and he would say, I have a bebop band. Uh, we are amazing. We are going to fill your room. I am going to, if you are interested in booking us, we are going to be charging you whatever it is, 700 bucks a night or something. Um, uh, but we'll do the first one free. And if you don't like it, we won't do it. And so he would get all of his band and he's he had connections. All, they'd fill the room. I think I used to see him at the pilot, if I'm not mistaken, the pilot regularly. That's right. Yeah. But they'd fill the room. And then the person with the restaurant would go, whoa, this is great. And then they would hire them. So so what Archie did is he he turned restaurants into jazz clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people only did it for like six months or a year. But he constantly found venues. So I think in Toronto, there's a lot of small venues you could get, you know, 30 to 100 people um, to to go into a concert. So in that way, I think it's okay. But it's a hard time right now. Uh, two things. People are not buying advanced tickets like they used to. They're deciding the last, the very last minute. So there's... Is that a leftover from COVID, James? From that 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 two and a half shut, year shutdown? Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. It's leftover from COVID and it, it means that people can't plan. They have to worry till the very last second if they're going to have an audience or not. Right. Let me mention something else while you're on that subject about what I've seen with musicians too, is it looks to me like you can't sell CDs at shows anymore because, well, you can't even play them in your car anymore. Like, so, you know, it used to be artists could count on merch, the merch table there, they'd go over and they'd have CDs or, you know, maybe vinyl in some cases and they'll replace that. But yeah. But uh, streaming for for sure has has not. Uh... It's it's killed it's killed it's killed touring. Touring used to be about you tour so you could sell a bunch of records. But now it's like no no. When you tour, you have to sell product or you're not going to make any money, 
right? You can't afford. So the tour didn't support the record. The well, James, in the good old days, you could sell you could sell 70 or 80 CDs at a show at uh, 20 bucks a pop, and there's your gas and hotel for the night. Exactly right. Now you're more likely, uh, Irene Torres could sell lipstick offstage. Emily Claire Barlow sells nail polish offstage. You're, you're better off to go into another thing. I, I finished um, a coloring book. Right. I saw that. Yeah, that looks really interesting. Yeah. So my coloring books available on Amazon. It's like 10 bucks. It comes to your door. Um, but when I was selling them off the stage, I'm selling way more coloring books than I am albums. Yeah, for sure. I have vinyl, CDs, and coloring books is the number one seller because you can't steal it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If you want to color, you got to buy the book. Well, speaking of making albums, uh, you hooked up with a company called Vesuvius Music. And, and and how did that come about and how is that going? Because, the, you know, talking about how, how to, you know, sell product, is that uh, still viable to do that? Well, it's interesting to figure out how viable. We've been at it for, I'm guessing, eight or nine years now. Yeah. It's probably my greatest pleasure uh, is to make records with artists. Um, I just finished producing something for Robert Priest and uh, Kevin Bright, the great guitar player. Oh, he was in the incredible. studio. Yeah. Uh, George Kohler, great Bob Scott and Allison Young. It was just an incredible bunch of jazz people in there playing with Robert Priest poetry. So that meant so much to me. So making records is great. Trying to make money from selling records is a whole nother ball game. But making the music itself is so great. And Vesuvius Music is a very unique place because the whole thing was founded uh, by Lorenzo de Gianfelice, who said, I'm going to find people who can afford to put some money in. And if they don't make their money back, they're not going to get angry. They're going to be like, hey, I made a great record. I'm helping an artist with their career. So it's half philanthropic. It's still business. Right. Um, but, you know, placing uh, songs in films and TV commercials or Netflix shows, it's easy to say, oh, we'll just go do that. But it's really hard to actually get it done. It's really hard because everybody wants to do that now. There are little ways that there might be some money coming in. But uh, even some of our people like Lou Pomonti and Jocelyn Barth have hundreds of thousands of hits on Spotify. Right. So, so that means they made a little money, but they're not making hundreds of thousands of dollars, I can tell you that. When I talk to some of my friends and they go, oh, you know, that artist has, you know, 300,000 um, uh, listens or whatever uh, on their album. And they're thinking, oh, they must be getting a big check in every month. Mm, no, sorry. <laughs> well, no, no, they probably get 500 bucks. They can go out for dinner and maybe get a Metro Pass for the month. That's about it. <laughs> That's about it. I know it's uh, as you said. It's it's. I mean, if there's any positive at all from streaming, it it could only be that it's easy now to hit a button, and if you're like an artist and they're coming to your town, right? Um, they you might go exactly. But but the it's broken, and something has to happen. I don't know how many years it will take, but something has to drastically change. And the mindset of young people who think music should be free because it's fun. And why should you pay for something? Yeah. Um, I hope that'll change because that's pretty hard to change. I'm the the records I sell off stage, including vinyl, are usually going to uh, older people who who will buy records. But younger people tend to just think they they're not going to pay for music. Correct. Correct. And they'll pay two hundred dollars for a ticket to see someone famous in a stadium, but they won't pay ten or twenty bucks to see a band in a small club. Yes. So it's 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 a it's not an easy time. It's rough out there, and it's 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 rough for musicians in general. And uh, again, I, I've had all sorts coming on the show, and and then you know they all have the same 
problem. Uh, is it even worth it for me to go out there and tour? I'm actually going to lose money at this point. The gas has gone up. The hotels have gone up. Yep. All the costs have gone up. So it depends on your age, right? Yeah. It depends on your, if you can afford it, there's nothing like it. You want to get out there and travel and meet people. You want to do it. But financially, you can't. And I think what people would be surprised about out there is some of the musicians that uh, you think are doing so well, they all have other gigs. They all have other jobs. Or they do something at home during the day for, oh, for from you know 10 till 4 in the afternoon. They do something else. One thing is, though, I don't have a lot of time for people that only whine because I'm like, look, you didn't have to be an artist. Like, if you have to be, yep. if you have to do it, then you have to do it. Yep. So there's no complaining. You know that you have to do this, right? I can't help it. I I I need to do what I do. I, I, there's no way I could do something else. It, like I don't, there's, I mean, could I, yeah, I could. I, 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 I did drywall for one summer, you know, in the eighties. Well, James, I like to say that if it's in your DNA, you can't get rid of that. It's there. And, uh, you know, and if your passion is there, you just do it. And if you can do something else, please do. <laughs> and you know what I also tell people? I said, just do it as for your passion. And sometimes money just comes in, you know, it, automatically, because if you become really good at something yeah. uh, and you have to become really great these days, you can't be good. You, you have to be great. Great advice. I tell people all the time, don't quit your day job or go get a day job. The other thing, too, is people fool themselves constantly and say, I'm I'm busy. I'm working hard. I hear the word I'm busy like every day when someone, sorry to get back to you for three weeks, but I've been busy. I'm like, oh, really? Because I haven't been doing anything. I've just been waiting for your call. No, right? It's not true. I say, get busy. Don't whine. Don't whine, please. Yes, you'll turn people off. No, also, if you're stressed out, that's a good time to write a song. Oh, absolutely. The best stuff comes out then. Exactly. The best stuff comes out because it just comes out. You don't sit there and stare at a blank white page for an hour. So, James, I want to ask you a personal question. What do you do when you go away from work um, and you need some downtime for yourself? Because, as I said, you are a whirling dervish with so much on your plate. What, what, what do you do? Do you, um, you know, how do you relax? It's, pr it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, it w when I can travel, I go up north. Uh, I have a few friends that have really nice houses in the woods, cabins in the woods, or up to see my dad. But it's like I will bring a book to read. I will bring uh, paper and pen. Sometimes I won't bring my laptop, right? Because I'm too tempted to do business. Um, I'll do a little business on my phone. My ringer is never on. I don't answer my phone. Um, so I have all these kind of rules that keep me sane. But the, my main thing is I like to either get right into a good book or I do writing. I find writing, I know I'm still being creative, but I find it really, really relaxing. And I think you like the water from what I, I remember. You like to, you, lo you love the water. I do. I do. So, yeah. So, so whether I'm in North Bay. With a nice beverage and an, on a nice sunny day, um, you know, uh, you know, sailing, or I think you're a sailor. Yep. I do. With sailing, sailing, I'm always with people though. That That's partying in a way. That's not really as relaxing as it should be. Relaxing is going down. I have a couple of friends like, one gal I'll take down to Costa Rica or Hawaii, or right now we're going back down to Cuba. So spending a couple of weeks just reading books and writing and chilling out and lots of swimming and lots of relaxing. So that's that's kind of it. If I'm in Toronto, um, this is going to sound odd, but I like to watch um, if I want to be brain dead, if I want to just fall asleep. Yes. I put on Barnaby Jones 
I have uh, the box set of his DVDs, 147 <laughs> okay. episodes. Um, and uh, seeing uh, Jed Clampett from the Beverly Hillbillies as a detective. See, yeah, but senior citizen there, by Barnaby Jones, 70-year-old detective. I love that show, and it makes me fall asleep. That or Murder, She Wrote. I just put on those, and I'll just fall asleep right away. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, that's really awesome. That's nice. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot here now before we wrap up, and I've got two questions for you. Well, actually, let me ask this one first, and then I'm going to give you one where I'm going to put you on the spot. What, what at this point in your in your career, what are some of your, your goals for the next few years? You've got the film thing going on. You, you're maybe going to start going back and forth more be, between Hollywood and here, and your, your career is continuing in a, in a fantastic way at Jazz FM. Um, you're going to do more and more of all of that. Is that basically your plan? Is just sort of you, you know, organically let that keep building and see where it goes. Or do you have anything else specific? You've, well, you've book, books out. You've done. You've done so much stuff. Great stuff. Yeah, my, my immediate plan. My immediate plan this summer. Uh, pro, well, this fall. This fall is to start doing uh, tours of Canada, and not all one long tour. Like I'll go out west for a while, okay. I'll come back. I'll go to Winnipeg for five days, come back. I'll go to Montreal, come back. But um, I'm going to be doing tours where I show uh, music videos I've directed mm -hmm. and a little bit of poetry and music in the first set. There is a break, and then I show my three films back to back. And then I do a Q&A. Very cool. And so I'll be touring this with Robert Priest, who is my favorite author, poet. Uh, he's also a great singer, which I didn't know how good he was until recently. But uh, he's in my three films. Mm -hmm. And I produced his latest record. And so the two of us are going to start going on tour. That's going to lead me, I hope, yes. to a feature film. So what you're asking, my next big thing yes. is to get financing for a feature film. I do not have to direct it. It's okay if I produce music supervisor, uh, producer. I, I can do a whole bunch of things. If me directing a major motion picture is what's going to stop it from happening, I'll get the heck out of my own way. <laughs> Move aside, yeah. <laughs> but I'm writing scripts. I have a lot of scripts I started writing during COVID. I have a lot of scripts that have to be turned into TV shows or films. I have a few people. I don't have a full-time agent, but I have a few people that are acting as a freelance agent and taking it places. So we'll see how that works out. But I think making films is my big thing because I get to make music for the movie. Absolutely. And I'll get better royalties from a movie than I will from Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. Well, I'm sure that's going to happen, the the feature film. And uh, that's a tour I'm going to be looking forward to in the fall, you said. Yeah. Okay, so now I'm going to put you on the spot. And I ask all of my guests this season this question near the end. So maybe, maybe you know it's coming. If I could wave a magic wand and give you three wishes to change anything you want in the current music biz that could help you and others, what would those changes be? I'm not saying I can do it. I'm saying I'm waving a wand here. And what would you do knowing that of all the difficulties out there currently? Um, well, as we just spoke briefly a little bit earlier about. Yeah, the first wave of that wand would be to make an even playing field so that people that don't have contacts have a hub have a place where people can find their music 
And mm-hmm. this is one thing I'll give Spotify and all these other streaming services. The one thing I'll give them is that you can cross-pollinate and discover new things. So there's at least a little Correct. of that already happening, uh, but something more fair because Spotify lists are based on money too like it's not it's not quite as wholesome as it is it appears in my opinion the big artists are getting more more richer as every day that goes by yes and and it should be reversed somehow absolutely absolutely okay. so I like that so uh, even playing field would be number one uh i would say number two would be more people wanting to manage talent there aren't enough pimps out there in the world we need more managers publishers, agents who really work, not just people who take a cut if you're successful, the people who drive you to the success and look after you. We do not have enough of those in this country. I don't think we have enough of those people on this planet. And certainly, I think if people are are, are going to school to learn this, but the, but the minute they learn this in school, they also learn how little money there is and realize, oh, I could take all of that and I could go work for some other company and actually make a living. Um, and the third <laughs> wish, because it's magic, I just want you to give everyone $1 million. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, that's nice. I like that third one. Did anyone ever tell you that yet? No, no. That's See, a first for You that. said it's magic. It's a magic yeah, wish. It is. So yeah, give I, everyone I I do $1 million. It. Yeah. Okay. $1 million would put us all in really good shape uh, where we could do everything we want with a passion and not worry about where the next dime coming in. Or if the musician's smart... They could buy a little piece of property and make a cheap album. No, that's smart. No, that, and some of the smart <laughs> right. ones from the past just, did exactly that. Just have a home. A great, great example, Tom. Charlie Watts told me this. He said, you know, when the band ran away from England and moved to uh, France, right, to avoid taxes. Yeah. Um, w- one of the best documentaries I ever saw was about that. Um, Charlie bought a castle. And he st- he owned it right up until he died. He he bought a- everyone else rented places and threw parties in Cannes. And he's like, no, I'm going to buy a castle. And, and in those days, it was probably just kind of affordable. And now it's probably worth fifty million. Who knows? Uh, some crazy amount of money. Exactly right. But but it's just the idea of like, wow, you really you went out and bought a place, even though you're a young kid, a drummer in a rock band, and you're like, no, I'm going to invest. Yeah. Well, here's another point that some of the musicians have been mentioning, which the um, yours are all great, by the way, is uh, there seems to be um, not enough music programs still in schools, including, uh, you know, lack of instruments even, and just not not generally uh, any kind of a focus at all on music, where I remember when I, I went to school, it was kind of a big deal to get be in a school band, and you know a lot of people graduated from from that. And to, to this day, we're, we're very successful. There are still some. There are still the, some some decent schools. It's still happening. Um, and in fact, there are. What I'm worried about is there are you know four or five hundred graduates every year from our four institutions in the area here. And okay. where do they go? Do they teach? Because all those musicians have to go get gigs, or how does that work? So that's that's also a problem. Um, I'm on the other side of, of that argument only because in my job, I see the schools that have musicians. I see the Jazz FM Youth Big Band. I see mm-hmm. yes, that we do, do an instrument drive and give schools instruments. So I see the positive side of that. But I do know, um, Mr. Holland's Opus, I do know that they're taking <laughs> instruments out of most schools or a lot of schools. So that is terrible. But luckily, I'm on the side of I keep seeing schools that do have music programs. Okay, good. Right. So so there's some out there. Yeah. So there's two sides to that story. Okay. 
That's terrific. Well, I want to say, uh, please uh, mention your upcoming uh, 40th birthday again. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to so, well, keep calling okay. you 40 if you, you don't mind. You can call me 40, by the way, but I look pretty <laughs> shitty for 40. I look okay for 60. Um, my birthday is April 12th at Old Mill, Toronto. Unisonfund.ca is where you can get tickets. Uh, $250 if you want to have dinner and have a fancy show. Molly Johnson is the MC. Jackie Richardson singing. It's going to be fantastic. But if you want to spend 40 bucks, uh, you can skip the dinner, uh, eat first, and then come and at 8 o'clock, 12 uh, rooms, 24 bands at the same time. And, you know, in Toronto, it's pretty rare. No place like the Old Mill. You can get a cocktail and walk down the hallway and walk from room to room. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, most places in Canada or in Ontario especially, you have to, like, buy a drink. Don't leave the room. Nope, you have to go buy a new drink over there. You can't walk down a hallway with a drink. So this is, like, a licensed building that's used to making weddings and big conventions and stuff. Yeah. So to turn it into a party palace is something else. And I love the staff there. I've been doing parties here for 15 years, and they're like family. It's my home away from home. James, it's it's very kind of you to to put that all together and to donate that. So again, major props for, to you for doing all that uh, heavy lifting and. Thanks. You know, this only cost me a couple of grand for to, to host my own birthday party. Cost me a couple thousand bucks because I rented rooms yeah. for some people visiting yeah. from out of town, so I could put them up. But 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 all the sponsors have looked after paying the bands, and Unison deserved to make a whole bunch of money. So, uh, you know, I'll always try to turn my birthday into a charity event. Uh, it feels less garrulous and glib. It's a little more like, hey, come and party with me because I love you, but the money's going to charity. Well, James, uh, I've absolutely loved doing this with you. Uh, I can't wait for this party next week. As a matter of fact, uh, I will be there for sure. Uh, bombing around all the rooms. You will know so many musicians. And, you know, most of the industry shows up. Gary Slade is one of the sponsors. So a lot of people show up at this thing. I can't wait. Thanks again for taking the time to chat. As I said, you're an incredibly busy person doing some fantastic things around town. Keep up the fantastic work on that and just uh, letting people have fun out there. You've made jazz cool again. You're an incredibly cool guy. Um, I can't wait to see you next week. And uh, thanks again. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Tom. And uh, I'm going to keep tuning in to your podcast. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Cheers. Cheers.